platform and sheep stud and your host. This is your podcast to learn more, know more and achieve more when it comes to shepherding. Come with me as we explore the amazing world of sheep and sheep farming together. So welcome to the Sheep Show podcast. This episode features what I would consider to be sheep royalty. <laughs> so we've got uh, Doug Deppler here with us and Doug and his wife run two studs. They actually have a, a Suffolk stud and a white Suffolk stud as well in, is it Dera Derenillum? Is that how you say it, Doug? Derenillum, yes. Derenillum, yeah, beautiful. And you've been breeding Doug now for 50 years yes excellent lots of lots of prizes lots of awards under your belt lots of accolades to you you and and your breeding and your sheep and I guess that's really what I wanted to focus on in this episode all all the things that I suppose you can share with other people all around the world so the sheep show podcast probably 50 percent of our audience is actually in the US, believe it or not. So it's a huge US audience, a lot of Suffolk's over there too. So really wanted to find out about, I suppose, what what people who are wanting to breed really good quality sheep, what are some of the things that have worked for you and, and for your family? So um, t- tell us a little bit about your, what got you into sheep in the, in the first place, Doug? Look, I grew up on a farm on third, third generation, fourth generation sheep farmer, never been any stud breeding in their family history. Um, But I was interested. Um, We always went to shows and had a look and I seemed to be drawn to the sheep judging. Um, And when I, or just before I left school, um, my father encouraged me to start a few, uh, start a small stud. Um, I don't know that he knew or thought that it would lead to anything in the future and um, so I got some Suffolk sheep. And how come you went with Suffolk's? Not really sure now. I believe my father probably thought that they were a smaller breed numerically and they might have been easier for me to break into. Yeah, we soon developed, I soon developed a a fondness for them and um, which is not necessarily practical or economical, but I did and um, and the whole family have followed suit. And and how different would you say the sheep that you breed now, the sheep you have now on your farm, how different are they from those sheep you first bought? Oh, look, they're infinitely better um, in many ways. I think I started with some reasonable quality sheep of that time the whole breed and not just my breeds but the whole sheep industry sheep have improved Mm -hmm. out of sight in 50 years the um, things like growth rate fertility muscle quality um, on the meat breeds wool quality on the wool breeds Uh, yeah just 50 years of consistent improvement by a lot of good sheep breeders yeah it's amazing isn't it what what we can achieve and I guess yeah how, how come that is so important how come getting quality breeding over generations how come that is so important in our industry I think any livestock breeder any true breeder has got a genuine passion for what they're doing and and um, their motivation is to improve 
Um, but as well as that, it's an economical reality that um, our sheep have to get better. They have to be more fun functional. We either need to be able to reach market weights earlier or um, to reach heavier weights. Um, uh, so we're driven by the um, the dollar. Is, is there more to it, do you think? Is there more than just the, the sort of commercial realities? wanting to get that quality focus oh, oh I think that I think that I I think that underpins it but as I said mm -hmm. there's a passion a true livestock breeder mm -hmm. uh, really enjoys what they do and um, they're driven by that continued desire to get better and better what are the benefits do you think when we've got quality breeding sheep particularly at, at a stud level what what does that result in for again, for us, for the industry, for, for sheep enterprises? Um, I think there's probably three things. It depends how you do it, um, how, how you value. There's a personal satisfaction. By improving the quality of your sheep, it can improve your financial bottom line, but you also know that contributing to an overall improvement in an industry that you're part of. So when you set out to, to, to think about your breeding objectives and what you wanted to achieve with, with breeding stud sheep, what what did you use to, to make those decisions and really determine your breed objectives? Oh, look, there's a lot of things and, and sometimes they vary slightly from over the years. Um, initially, we just wanted to have good ones. Uh, wanted to have good ones. We've... Um, uh, always competed in the show ring um, and that becomes a yardstick from a subjective point of view. They have to, um, you have to keep improving. Everybody else keeps improving so you need to keep improving but um, financial reality comes into it. Um, in our case, we're breeding a meat sheep mm -hmm. to be successful either in the show ring, the stud sale ring or in the commercial sale ring. We've got to have more meat on them. Mm -hmm. They've got to be functional sheep so that, um, uh, you know, like I believe very strongly that um, good structure and balance are the most important things in any animal mm -hmm. and um, is the uh, fundamental foundation of good constitution and, and we need good constitution in our animals. Mm -hmm. I've heard some people talk about, you know, having a, a selection differential. Can, yeah, you, can, yeah. you, uh, can you explain what that is? I'm a practical sheep farmer. Uh, never really looked into the technical side of it. A lot of the decisions I make, they're more automatic now because of experience, mm. but they're often a gut reaction to what I see, what I've learnt. The modern ideal uh, in particular is to have large numbers so that you've got more to select from mm -hmm. and so that the, the group of sheep you're working with may, you know, there might be a far bigger range um, in certain traits. Um, but um, I've never had really big numbers and their numbers have, uh, are shrinking a little bit now. Um, for practical reasons, mm. um, and I, I look. I think if your 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 ewe flock is sound, 
is uh, very good in all the basic um, things like structure and fertility and all of those, um, and you use good quality sires, you should expect to get an even lamb drop. Mm. And therefore, you don't necessarily need big numbers to choose to select from. And when you say even, are you talking about even in terms of characteristics and structure and, and growth? Are you talking about all those sorts of things? I, I think the mark of a good stud or herd or whatever flock of purebred animals is that they all look similar. Now, I know a lot of stud breeders um, have multiple families within their stud. They'll have some experimental groups, certainly the bigger the bigger operators, those of us that have got small numbers, um, don't necessarily have the space, um, say, on a small property to be able to, to do that. But I think the measure of a good stud is that uh, consistent quality. There's nothing worse than... Um, you know, I've been to properties where somebody's been had a, a big win in the show ring, yeah. and then you go down to their property and half their sheep. You think, mm, why are they in the start? Yeah, yeah. Um, and to me, uh, that would give me no confidence to buy their better animals yeah. uh, because they haven't got the consistency of breeding within their own mm. stud. And talking of sires. What do you look for in a, in a quality sire? What do I look for? What do I look for in any any animal? The most important thing to me is structure and balance. Mm-hmm. They have to be put together correctly. They have to have good, strong, sound legs and feet. Um, we don't want sheep breaking down too early in their lives. So we start with that. That to me is by far the most important thing. The next thing in the case of the meat, breeds to be a good carcass animal and whilst I believe in a stud flock it's extremely important to have very high breed quality Mm. uh, very very good quality in regards to breed type that's the last thing that you that I see and to add in so I look for all of those things when I'm selecting sires from within the stud we look at uh, the best lambs. You, you it, don't ask me to explain this, but after fifty years, you can pretty much pick the best or the most interesting lambs when they're born. Um, we have our first really thorough look at our lambs at weaning, and then again about this time of the year, and and then at, at yearling or a little bit past yearling age and. The very best sheep will be in your best group of lambs at every one of those stages, and it's just a continual comparison against their their mates. Mm. Um, if I'm looking to select a sire from outside our flock, I like the show ring as a means of being able to compare different sheep, mm. but that's not always possible. Um, and sometimes the sire that you introduce from outside may not be the best possible sire available. It may be that you've uh, identified a particular area in your own animals that needs to be strengthened. And then, you know, you may go out and just specifically buy an animal that's very strong in that one trait and hope that 
when mated with your ewes, the result will be what you're looking for. But it doesn't always happen like that. Mm. You don't always get the right results. So it sounds like there what you're saying is a lot of it is just observation, looking at your animals consistently over certain sort of time periods and then a gut feel element. The, I believe the observation thing is, is the most critical. Any good stud master, I believe, is consistently and continually looking at their animals. You know, you check them in the paddock and then you see an animal and you think, hmm, not sure that I like that. Um, next time that mob's in, you should identify that animal if you don't specifically know it and, and have a closer look. Um, it, it's continual. It's the way to learn. Every year we pick out a show team and we might spend half a day picking out half a dozen young rams in one breed and think we've done a pretty good job. And most years we'll make at least one change in the month after that when we reassess them and, and you know, uh, once we bring them out of the mob, bring them into a small paddock close by where you're seeing them every day, um, 50 years of breeding and you still don't see everything the first time you see the animal. Mm-hmm. So it's all about observation and the time you spend studying your pedigree, studying your records and, yeah, and then all of a sudden after 50 years people say you're well experienced and uh, um and it comes back to what I said originally, that you've got to have the passion, you've got to want to uh, to be successful with stud breeding. You have to put in a lot of time that um, some people can't or won't justify, but you need to put that time in. You need to be consistently thinking about your animals and other animals that you've seen and where you go and, you know, planning your breeding program two and three years in advance. But that comes when you when you, when you you get old and silly or um, <laughs> it gets easier for some people and um, uh, some people think you're silly. Um, but, hey, what what else is better to do than <laughs> study, study pedigrees, look at photos of old... Uh, old photos of sheep from generations gone by and see if you can pick the same traits in them, you know, their their great-great-grandprogeny that you've got today. So, so Doug, no fast track? Anybody can do it. And if you want to do it bad enough, as I say, if you've got the passion, I've seen people come into stud breeding in and after five or six years, they're competing with the very consistently uh, on a level with the, the best. I've seen people play around with stud sheep for 25 or 30 years and sometimes, quite frankly, you wonder why they bother. So, yes, you can do all this in a shorter space of time mm. and um, theoretically, um, if you're computing this through your own onboard computer, it should be a lot easier for a younger person than an older person to mm. come up with the results and the answers a lot quicker. Mm. Mm. But, but yeah, no, look, that, that if I was going to give any advice to anybody mm. starting out is you've got to know your animals and you not just yours but, mm. you know, when you go to a show, 
it's great to talk to other breeders, but don't forget that the most important thing is that you should be there to learn and you learn both by talking to those other breeders but by looking at sheep, Mm -hmm. looking at sheep and studying them. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a few things there around, you know, your breeding program. So how would someone go about deciding what characteristics they're wanting to to have in in their sheep so sort of I suppose determining their own breed objectives and then how might they make that sort of breeding decision I think um, particularly when somebody's starting out should use the standard of breed type as a guide try and breed to that ideal and then how far and how quickly you want to push or how, how quickly or how, um, how hard you have to work in a particular direction because of the sheep you've been able to um, start with. Yeah, I think starting out, you, your intention should be to breed um, a good general all-purpose round, good sound average uh, type for that breed. And um, once you get your base, just see, and, and sometimes it's as simple as um, middle of the road, forget the extremes within the breed, get the middle of the road type and um, keep working on that and, and, and keep trying to improve it. by. Mm. Um, and the best way you can do that is every time you need a new outside sire, try and buy the best that you can possibly, uh, mm. that you can find or certainly the best that you can afford. Mm because that does come into it sometimes for some people. Is it is it good to sort of say, okay, I want more, for example, length in the, in the loin of this particular animal or my, my breed overall, I'm looking for length, for example, and then you get, for example, a sire which has length. In your experience, does it does that work? Is it, is it just to something as simple as that or does that mess with other things potentially? I, I find it hard to put a lot of things into words. You know, people say, but you must know because, you know, you've got the experience, but it's putting it into words. You can theoretically increase the overall length of the animal, but if you manage to increase either deliberately or accidentally one section of it out of proportion to the rest of the body, you've lost your balance. Um, so it's not something like uh, I think in in this day and age, if you've got the basic sheep, it's easier to improve things like growth rate and the amount of muscling on the animal, the quality of the wool, because these things can be measured. Everybody theoretically should be able to, um, uh, once they completely understand what's meant by good structure and balance once you understand that, once you know what a good animal of your breed looks like, mm. everybody should be able to breed, breed those basic animals. Mm. And then it's a matter of um, using measurements to improve the commercial traits. I think that's, I think that's really good advice, Doug, because I think that's, you know, for, for a new breeder in particular, having that, it's very factual, it's very objective, it's data, and and you can really use that to make a, a confident decision that with your breed moving forward. I think it's really good. The objective data can come in various forms and um, you can 
concentrate on certain areas of it. You don't have to follow it all mm. or all of it in the short term. You can mm. pick and choose mm. from from what's available. Is balance is balance one of those observation things? Is, is, is it something that you just sort of almost feel about the animal or can you determine balance more scientifically? Yes and no. Um, a well-balanced animal has everything in proportion and uh, it was put to me many years ago that a perfectly balanced animal, if you measure the nostrils to the top of the head mm. between the ears, it should be the same length as from there to the base of the neck. Then when you go past the shoulder, and again, then you've got, you know, your your long ribs, and then you go to your loin, and and you will find on a well balanced animal that those measurements then equate from pastern to knee, and from knee up to the next joint. A very simple one that I've used for many years. Can't remember who told me long ago. You look at an animal. You look at your sheep side on. And if uh, imagine that they're standing perfectly, and we know they don't all do it all the time, uh, but if they're standing with their legs straight up and down, in your mind you see a dot at ground level where both the feet are. You see a dot uh, immediately above it at the uh, top of the shoulder and, again, a dot immediately above the back leg uh, just forward of the tail. Join those four dots together and you should have a rectangle on its side. Mm. If you've got a square, that animal's out of proportion and therefore not perfectly balanced. Mm -hmm. And, of course, if you go the other way and it's a rectangular uh, standing perpendicular, well, you're you're in real trouble. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is a very simple way of looking at it. And um, um, it doesn't have to be an exaggerated rectangle. Mm. But as long as the length is higher, longer than the height, mm. you're pretty much on the right track. Mm. That's fabulous. What a little gem, Doug. That's brilliant. Very good. Oh, well, you do. You, you, even, um, even, the, even if you're not the brightest of people, you must learn something in 50 years <laughs> if you um, try hard enough. Oh, I think you're selling yourself way too short, Doug. Way too short. When uh, when you think about breeding enterprises, what do you think makes the the biggest difference? You know, like we saw, for example, last year, some of the ram sales, some absolutely phenomenal prices for for rams. You know, in the twenties and and thirty thousand dollars. You know, which you know I, I think is quite amazing. Um, you know, and, and then you know the the next the next week there was sales and. They're the same breed were going for two and three thousand dollars, which is still really good. You know, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But what makes such a big difference, do you think, uh, to these breeding enterprises? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I've been experiencing that all my life, and I'd say that that people, the farmers that went be breeders, animal breeders that went before me, experienced the same things and yeah. supply and demand, politics, things mm. that happen over the other side of the world, and yeah, all sorts, industrial mm. relations. And, and look, um, in any stud breeding enterprise, any life form of livestock, 
um, the prices equate back to two things, to markets and seasons. Mm. And uh, over the last 12 months, mo- much of Australia have had good season mm. um, and some areas really needed it after what had gone before. We've seen good seasons and we've seen good markets for most of the agricultural commodities. Mm. When farmers have got money, they spend it. And the price of, in our case, the price of rams goes up. So so is is there a reflection there on quality at all, do you think? Oh, look, it doesn't matter whether, it doesn't matter whether markets are high or low, Mm. within that market, quality will always sell. And yes, uh, I think we're probably in this country in in 2020, we've bred some of the best sheep. Uh, I'm sure we've bred the best sheep that we've ever bred. Mm. Um, 2021, the sheep might be better, but who knows, the market may not be as high in 12 months' time. Mm. And that then doesn't come back to the fact that how good the sheep are. It's all those other Mm. other influences. And then it, it's a, it does fluctuate. Things fluctuate all the time. Yeah. So you've been a judge yes. a few times, Doug, I, I dare say, judging sheep in a show. I've done it, judged a few times, yes. <laughs> Just one or two times. Can you talk us through your approach to judge? Like, for example, I've heard people say start, start at the bottom, start at the feet, work your way up sort of stuff. You know, do you have a little sort of methodology that you use for judging? I guess um, I start with visual. You get the first impression is extremely important. Uh, I've always, and I was taught many, many years ago to start at the head. And the theory is that the head can be the signpost to so many other things. Mouth's important, even it shows where the inspectors have inspected mouths. The pass level can be slightly lower than what some breeders demand in their own situation. So check the mouths for yourself. Without realising it, you'll notice the eye of the animal and Mm. the eye's bright, you know, the animal's healthy and all those Mm. sort of things. Uh, Some people like to feel the head or feel the ear. We like to see see a nice soft a soft hair, not a coarse hair. It's a very minor thing, but it generally goes with um, a better quality animal and don't ask me to explain how or why that should be. And then I tend to um, handle them, especially a woolly animal, along the spine and also the width right through the body. Um, if you place your hands in a good, uh, in the right position, in the right way, you can measure or show yourself width and length of loin, for instance, without um, almost without thinking about it. Yeah, handle a sheep mm-hmm. as you'd expect somebody else to handle your sheep. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not there to poke and prod. Um, I was taught many, many years ago, try and use the flat of your hand or the end of your fingers, but in a flat way, don't point and poke jab, down, poke jab downwards. Um and and I finish up by running my hands down over the hindquarter. Mm. If I'm and I will do that with any breed of sheep. If I'm looking at a, a wool breed or a dual purpose breed, then I go back and look at the wool. And of course, you know, I think anybody uh, breeding wool sheep knows that 
you know, the fleece can vary and um, first thing we look for is evenness of fleece and um, there's certain key spots to look on a woolly-headed animal. We look on the pole, we look on the point of the shoulder, we look along the spine, perhaps over the rump and um, and along the side, shoulder, mid-side rump and um, mm. even right down to belly line. Um, uh, but doesn't matter what breed I'm judging. If I'm judging a woolly sheep, I generally to look at what's underneath. Uh, if a sheep's got a lot of wool on it, uh, sometimes you need to feel under that to make sure that the structure is what you want and that it's got you know the necessary width here and there. And then it comes right back to visual again because um, it's so important that you see the animals walk. Um, and when they're walking, you, know, you shouldn't be just looking at um, the legs and feet. Um, in some of the breeds now, some judges much prefer to have the animal turned loose in a pen mm. rather than to be just led or walk up a race. The experienced eye can tell sometimes just by the way the animal's standing. You don't have to see it walk. You can tell by the way it's standing if the legs and feet are sound and square in the way they they need to be. So a lot of visual in it uh, when I'm judging and the hands are there to back up. And if the sheep have um, scan data on them, yeah, certainly look at it. Uh, but it shouldn't be the be-all and the end-all if you want to uh, measure a sheep only by scan data. Mm-hmm do so if you want to uh, and in the show ring we're there to measure the sheep and um, rightly or wrongly it's still a subjective assessment um, in the main part. Mm-hmm. What's been the hardest decision you've ever had to make as a judge? Oh look I can't recall a specific one at the moment mm-hmm. but big numbers of very good quality sheep are easier to judge than a small show, you might go. There might uh, there might be three sheep come out before you in the class, and they're all different, mm. and you don't like any of them. You can find problems with all three of them. Mm. Uh, then what do you do? If you've got big numbers, there will always be enough good sheep to fill fill the ribbons. And um, yeah. so, yeah, small numbers of uh, lesser standard sheep. Um, they're a, they're a uh, they're a test. Yeah. They can be a test to do the right thing um, by the show and by the individual exhibitors, and and you know try and say something nice about their sheep or point out why you don't like them. Mm. Um, sometimes it's not easy to find anything good mm. to say on some animals, mm. um, but no. Um, Judging can be tiring. It can be very taxing. Uh, big classes are a strain because they take a lot longer and um, the, the, the gallery always gets, um, you know, a bit agitated if they think the judge is taking too long. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the judge needs to take a fair amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so big classes, but big classes can be taxing, but... Mm-hmm. Um, there's still uh, oh, a lot of a lot of enjoyment, a lot of um, uh, self satisfaction about um, trying to um, 
sort out those sheep and put them into some sort of order that satisfies you. And um, a judge should always remember that um, he only has to satisfy one person. Um, and if the exhibitors don't like the results, uh, and some of them never will, um, and on a given day we've got winners and losers, so winners are grinners and the losers, well, but uh, judge, as long as the judge is happy that the job he's done, um, that's the most important thing. Um, there's been there's always a lot of talk about things like line breeding and, and things like that to to try and get that consistency or to um, reproduce certain qualities. What is what is line breeding to you, and and how much do you use it in your breeding? Um, I use it a lot. Use it all the time, and contrary to a lot of modern opinion. I'm more than happy to be called old-fashioned. All the top livestock breeders in my lifetime and, and well before uh, used line breeding uh, and used it to a great extent. Um, I believe if you want to establish a type um, and then breed that type consistently, you need some degree of line breeding. In this day and age... You know, there's a school of thought that that's totally wrong. You know, in, in some performance recording schemes, you can be penalised if the if your pedigrees are too close. How close is too close? Whilst ever it works, it's line breeding. And if it doesn't work, then it's inbreeding. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes those inbred animals can produce good offspring than when you introduce an outcross. I will breed brother over sister if the brother has the female line, if they're if they're the if one side of their pedigree is quite different. To me that's line breeding. Say for instance you've got a ram and a number of ewes all by the same sire. If the ram, say, has a very different female line in its pedigree, I will go there for one generation and then outcross. I don't do mother over daughter or son over um, son over mother. Um, that has been done and can be done quite. Yeah. Uh, but I would say in our breeding program, cousins all the time. Yeah. Um, you've got to be careful. People come to me and buy sheep and they say, now, can you sell me, you've, you can sell me some ewes, can you sell me an unrelated ram? I say every sheep that's here will have some degree of, of relationship in its pedigree and simply when I sell sheep to people, uh, I don't sell a ram and a ewe as close as what I would breed myself. Yeah. In our white suffix, or both breeds, we haven't introduced up until this year, haven't introduced any fresh blood for four or five years, um, and our sheep, in our opinion, are still getting better every year. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't work for everybody. Um, I think it's easier when you've got better quality sheep. Uh, I think if you're starting out and you've got a few sheep that are more secondary in quality, uh, I'd be more reluctant then because you will strengthen, line breeding will strengthen the dominant qualities. Mm -hmm. And if you've got 
serious faults in your animals, they'll come out worse. Mm -hmm. If you've generally got good quality animals, um, I believe your, 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 your type and the uh, repeatability of that type in your animals will strengthen. Mm. Um, and I just look back at all the great stock breeders, you know, uh, early on in my 50 years of breeding um, and still today, I've always tried to talk to as many experienced people as I can, read all sorts of articles now in the press and wherever, stories on particular breeders. Yeah, all the top breeders in the last century in particular all practice line breeding. And um, if if you get it right, it's, it's an amazing tool. But um, you've got to know how far you can go and, and when you need an outcross. And uh, what about something like grand uh, grandfather of a granddaughter have you is that something you've tried is that too close for you or do you think that oh works? look i think it's i think it's more it's more like uh, cousins and things we um you know we work on the same a lot of our sheep will trace yes a lot of our sheep will trace back to common ancestors yeah. but we've just juggled things a little bit different. So mm. it, it, it's more like degrees of cousins, I would have thought, than mm. um, than, than to be something so specific. But so, hey, that can work. Mm. That Those sort of things can work and I've seen it work, mm. you know. Um, yeah. Is that the sort of stuff that you're, you're mentioning there, that, you know, people having these experimental-type groups is... is you know what? What sort of things are they doing in those sorts of groups? Is it really? Oh, I think I think that yeah. No, I think the big stud, the bigger studs, or not necessarily bigger studs. Everybody's uh, everybody's trying to get an advantage or or get to that even better animal. Mm. And um, sometimes I think you know people will experiment with extremes in types. Um, may bring in a completely different bloodline. We, we've always tried to keep our stud unit relatively close. So, you know, it's too hard. Unless you've got big numbers, it's too hard to keep families separate mm. for several generations and then cross them. And um, um, I think it works better when, um, personally, when you consider that other stud over there that somebody else is running, that's the other family and that's the new family to bring in. I think it it makes things easier at times, certainly from a management point of view. Mm. But uh, there's no doubt there there's plenty of big studs in the country, not so much in the, the Suffolk, but, you know, there's there's white Suffolk studs with a 1,000 breeding ewes and... Um, they will have multiple bloodlines in that stud and then will be, you know, they'll have a, a family in the stud where they might be concentrating on early maturity and then another family where they're concentrating on mature body weight and um, and therefore then they have got a range of rams to sell because not every commercial breeder is breeding for the same market or breeding in the same conditions and so that... Um, uh, those bigger studs then are able to offer a wider range of potential clients the rams that they they, they require. Thank, thanks, Doug. That's, yeah, really interesting just to sort of look at that and just sort of get an insight into extremes, I suppose, are out there. You mentioned earlier on growth rate, and I know reading, in fact, I checked out a little profile on you on the um, Australian 
uh, Suffolk Association website, and you mentioned one of the things that you mentioned about your study is you you don't push your sheep, you don't um, uh, supplement your 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 sheep. So um, I'm interested in how come, and also given that you, you mentioned growth rate, how how are you getting the sort of growth qualities you're wanting in a in a more natural way? I suppose we've tended to, uh, certainly in more recent years, lowered our stocking rates a little bit um, in a means of lowering a workload as as we've been getting older. And, yeah, no, we've probably always tried to do things a bit more naturally. I think it, it's better for the animals. We've found over a number of years by trying not to supplement our breeding flock, and then this goes against what most of the advice is to modern-day farmers, but if we don't supplement our breeding flock, they perform much better for us in the tough seasons. Mm. There's no doubt about that. I believe we've, we've, I've got no hesitation in saying that we've improved the constitution in our animals by not making it easy for them. But then, on the other hand, we lower their stocking rates so they've got a greater area to um, to graze over. How do we improve weight gain in a situation like that? Genetics, we like to manage our sheep well. We like them to have plenty of feed in front of them all the time, but it's basically most of the sheep, for most of the sheep, it's just pasture. And uh, if you've got the right direct genetics and the right constitution, if they've got sufficient quality food, even if it's just grass, they will still gain weight mm. and and improve their weight gains generation by generation. And um, and then they're hardier sheep. And is that something you can achieve, Doug, all year round, even sort of pre-lambing? Yep. Yep, we've done a, most of our country stony volcanic country. There's really no way of improving it, uh, improving the pastures to spread fertilizer, for instance, so it have to be done yeah. from the air. We've only got a small farm now. The planes don't want to know us about it because we don't have a big enough area for yeah. them to. Um, we've gone right back to working with nature. We supplement our sheep on a regular basis with um, natural products, which we, we drench them with on a regular basis. And, um, yeah, our sheep are doing well on it, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't have to, no longer am I in the situation where I have to breed as many lambs as possible and, and perhaps turn them off as quickly as um, as I might do, you know, if I'm running a big business. And um, so I've found that you know, by going back to a lot of the older-fashioned ideas, it's easier on me and it doesn't affect the sheep. I, I think uh, you many, um, I'm guessing now, 15, 20 years ago, a lot of dairy country south of us and the dairy farmers got into a system where they were putting high levels of fertiliser and nitrogen out, sometimes three and four times a year, so that they could just grow more and more high-protein grass. And after a, a few years of doing that, 
a lot of those dairy farms were running at at least 30% of their cows that weren't getting back in calf the next mm. year. Just two pastures just became too rich and, um, yeah. Wow. So um, I thought that was silly mm. that uh, all the money they were putting out to run a few extra cows and get a few extra litres of milk in the vat every mm. day um, and they had to keep so many more heifers replacement heifers every year because the cows wouldn't do what was mother nature said was the most you know natural thing for them to do Mm -hmm. wow you mentioned that you're yeah i'm old-fashioned old-fashioned well yeah i guess it's it's what you're describing there is quite traditional farming practices you know quite and and nowadays quite regenerative farming practices and and ironically a lot of the research says that that works even better Oh, look, I'm, I'm a great advocate yeah. for all of those things and um, yeah. I don't necessarily practice them, but uh, I do think that, um, uh, you know, West Adventist, you start to me sustainable agriculture. We've got a lot of yeah. croppers in this area and um, they put out more and more fertiliser and more and more chemical sprays for weeds every year and... Yeah. Um, I do seriously wonder what it's doing to the soil. And mm. How do you manage weeds if you if you happen to have any down your way? We we do we do get them. We get them some years worse than others, mm. but depending on how serious they are, I will spray if I have to. If it's only a small area, old fashioned way, dig them out, chop dig them out. out. Love it. Um, some 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 of the weeds doesn't matter. Mm. Some of the I weeds like don't matter. Um, mm. I, I've read stories and that from overseas where um, mm. sheep have grazed pastures that's, you know, 30 different sorts of plants and some of them we call weeds and different times of the year and depending on what they need in their makeup, they'll eat different plants. Yeah. Whereas nowadays the whole idea is you plant more and more improved pastures and more clover and um, you give them less choice. Mm-hmm. Um, give them more choice and they'll, they'll eat what they want and then when they get hungry, they you can still make them clean the paddock up. And um, yeah. um, But no, they'll, they'll eat a lot of weeds at different times, but yeah. we don't we don't get too okay. many, uh, yeah. too much variety. So. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. You mentioned that you're using some... Yeah, I'm, I'm a lazy farmer. <laughs> but... Yeah. But smart, maybe. Maybe smart, not lazy. Yeah, I don't worry about some things now that are like I used to. Um, as I'm getting older, I think, no, I can't be, can't, we don't need to do that. Yeah. But I don't have to make a living and send mm. kids to university and all that now. That's all That's all in the past. So, mm. yeah. It's different, different, yeah, different decisions. You're making different decisions because you can base them on different things. So what are, what are those some um, supplementary drenching products that you're using, Doug? We use a lot of product called Natra Kelp, which is liquid seaweed. Mm. Um, it's made from Tasmanian bull kelp, which is supposed to be the richest plant on the planet mm. in terms of minerals in particular, but vitamins. Yeah. Um, we drench because we've got small numbers and we can do it, we, we uh, do all our supplements in a drench form which means that every animal gets 
the required dose and if an animal's down in condition or scouring slightly, well, they get more. Mm. Um, we uh, That's the basic one, but more often than not, we use a, uh, uh, a trio of products. We use uh, in conjunction with the seaweed, we use apple cider vinegar and garlic just for general health and condition. And um, we also add uh, use cod liver oil, the two main components, vitamin A and D, in the summer supplements the lack of green grass and in the winter supplements the lack of sunshine. How frequently would you use that across your... your uh, very varies a lot. At, right at the moment, we've um, about six weeks before mating, we did the use. Mm. We did them again at mating and a couple of weeks or so after the rams come out, they'll be... Um, drenched again, they'll be drenched pre-lambing or at mm-hmm. lambing. Yeah. Um, and again, at some stage post-lambing and probably at shearing. Mm-hmm. So around about half a dozen for the adult ewe flock. Um, some of our weaner sheep might get it every 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 month if we're mm-hmm. handling them for other, because there, there's a cost factor, but mm. um, you can't hurt them by overdosing them. Mm. With those sort of products, you can't hurt them by overdosing. And um, yeah, one, on one particular occasion, I remember quite clearly the cost of those three drenches together equaled the cost of a particular chemical drench that we needed to use at, at that stage. So it is cheaper than chemical drenching all the time and it's, and it's more natural. And um, I've also improved pastures by... A few years ago, we had two small paddocks side by side and um, all average-sized past paddocks. One we wanted to cut for hay. They had a similar grazing history. We put fertiliser out on the one we wanted for hay to boost it for the hay production. Mm. A couple of weeks later, the other paddock, we put in sheep that... um, had just had a big drench of all these natural drenches. Now, these sheep hadn't had a chemical drench at that stage for nine or ten months. That paddock that those sheep went into um, a month or so later was well in front of the paddock that had been shut up for hay with the chemical fertiliser, the artificial fertiliser, yeah. Even after grazing? yeah, uh, with the grazing because mm. the sheep were the sheep were fertilising it for us with a healthy mm. fertiliser. Wow! And do you do you mix the kelp and the cod liver oil to, to sort of administer that? You easily? can apparently, yeah. When but we we do three separate trenches. Okay. We're not handling big, we're not handling big numbers. Yeah. So as a result of using that. Um, uh, we've cut back on our number of chemical drenches. We still use chemical drenches, but uh, we went two years at one stage without a chemical drench into our breeding flock. Wow. Um, we've gone back now. We'll give them one and maybe two a year strategic drenches, mm. and certainly lambs will have a couple of drenches yeah. in their first six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're nearly we're nearly ready to cut back on the worm drenches again mm. uh, because it can work here. Yeah. Mm, that's really good. Yeah. yeah, really good. Wow. So and and muscle scanning. You mentioned you use the muscle scanning as well to make decisions yes. on, on that. Yeah. Yeah, and um, we use stock scan. Um, 
I like the basic concept of getting an eye muscle area and I'm I'm only theory, I'm really only interested in those results in flock. Um, so that that does me gives me a practical um, assessment of, of uh, the young animals who will run the same day and um, um, oh, I think it's an invaluable tool. Whatever perform of, of um, um, objective assessment you use, I think it's an invaluable tool as long as you remember that it is only a tool and it's only part of the whole um, process. Um, but, yeah, no, muscle's important. We're breeding meat sheep. We've got to improve the carcass on our animals. And um, I like I like the width measurement because um, I can see in our own sheep that uh, an improvement in hindquarter since we've been using the width measurement. Mm, right. Yeah, definite improvement. Fabulous. Yeah. That's great. That's really good to hear. Yeah, really good to hear. On that, um, I was just uh, looking at doing some research myself on you know, the shape of, of the hind quarter and, and, you know, whether or not, you know, you get, is that V better or that more sort of um, M shape better and, and, one of the things that I, I saw was this M, M shape, so where the basically it's got a, a bigger butt, it's more fat. And, and, and I'm just wondering on your perspective, you know, is there an ideal shape that you would like to see, uh, you know, hindquarters to, to be, particularly on a meat sheep? Um, where that V in the crutch is filled in, yes, often it can be fat. Um, but I think, I believe that where we are today and with the aid of muscle measurements, we are getting a bigger hindquarter. We are getting a more filled in crutch area, um, that is still meat. Um, I think we are improving that. I've got no doubt about that. Um, but then we've got to remember, of course, that muscles aren't necessarily round and aren't necessarily uh, round. A lot of our muscle, a lot of muscles are more elongated in their shape. And um, um, so, yes, it, um, you do have to be uh, aware because that's one of the first areas that um, a sheep will lay down fat. And um, it's uh, always been a danger when overfeeding young ewes that they put on too much fat in their, that area, uh, which in turn um, has an effect on their udder development and their milk supply later in life. So, um, yeah, fat in that area is not desirable, but um, I think we are getting a a much fuller-shaped hindquarter today that is meat, and I think that's down to, yeah, just improved breeding. Mm. Wonderful. And talking of hindquarters, Doug, what is your favourite cut to eat of lamb? The forequarter, the shoulder. <laughs> without a doubt. Without, without a doubt. doubt. I love it. I'm a forequarter eater from way back. Wow. How do you um, cook it? How do you like it to be cooked? Oh, slow roast, only one way, slow yeah. roasted, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Wow. No, yeah. that's the only way. That's the best mm. cut of meat, mm. yeah. I love the shoulder too. Yeah. Oh, it's good. It, it's an old-fashioned. Old a lot of people don't even eat it now, but mm. um, in fact, I think it's um, if you're going to be buying your meat out of the supermarket, I don't think you'll ever see Find. a shoulder no. roast. Um, <gasps> I think that they're pretty much always cut into um, four-quarter chops, Chop. but, um, mm. you know, old-fashioned farmers that... Uh, for generations, we've been eating our own sheep and, um, yeah, everything. Yeah, well, no, uh, years ago when I was a kid, the, the out of the sheep, what, what sort of cuts do you get out of a sheep? You get roasts and you get chops and that's it. That was yeah. it, yeah. Uh, roasts and chops. Yeah. Roasts and chops, yeah. Yeah, isn't it interesting? Yeah. I think, yeah, there's there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, a lot of cuts that yeah you won't you won't see or you won't get in a in a supermarket that you get to know pretty well when you're eating your own. Oh, I know. Yeah. Mm. Wow, that's yeah, fine. that's right. Yeah. Right stuff. Beautiful, Doug. So, just final advice. What what advice would you have, particularly for someone who really wants to take their breeding program perhaps to the next level? What advice can you leave them with? Well, I could go on for hours, really. <laughs> what advice? You've got to, I'll just try and sum up my thoughts, mm. I guess. You have to have a passion. If you want to be successful, you have to have a passion because you have to put in the extra hours that perhaps you can't necessarily justify on a practical or an economical. So um, observe study your own animals, study other people's animals and never miss an opportunity to learn. And the best way to learn is to talk to experienced people um, or, or um, read uh, interviews in this day and age. Uh, I'm sure there's some podcasts out there somewhere from people that know what they're talking about. Listen to those they a lot of people will tell you that if you listen to too many people you may become confused you've got to know how to sort things out for yourself mm. but it can be very interesting if you talk to 10 people and eight people tell you the one thing yeah. then there's a fair bet that that's pretty right and um so uh, but you've got to remember that just because something works for somebody, it doesn't necessarily work for yourself. Mm. So um, you, you've got to be prepared to try something different occasionally and just give it a good shot give and it enjoy it because there's a lot of fun breeding sheep. <laughs> well, you always seem pretty happy, Doug, every time I see you. So I think you're you're def definitely a, a, the living proof of that. A lot of fun to be had. Thank you so much, Doug. I really appreciate you joining us today on the on the Sheep Show podcast and sharing all your little gems. So thank you so much. And for the listeners, we'll really enjoy learning from you. Thanks again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Sheep Show podcast with Jill Noble from Holston Valley Farm. Please take a moment to share this episode via your podcast app, email, or via social media channels. Each share helps us reach listeners just like you who can benefit from our content. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, sheep well.